Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. Today, we're going to take a look at history in Michigan from a new angle, and that is through historical fiction. Authors who create in this genre are a unique kind of storyteller. They intermix factual events and details with fictional characters to transition the reader into that time period for entertainment purposes. But at the same time, they make it a unique learning experience for them. Today, I have a special guest who has written numerous historical fiction books on Michigan's past. These settings range from the region just north of Grand Rapids to her latest project that's set in the Upper Peninsula. Although geographically these stories may be better defined as western or northern Michigan, the details that she imparts in her stories from the past are historically accurate to all other parts of the state during these time periods. So this is why I invited her on the show today. Plus, she's an amazing storyteller with several books, including the Northern Michigan series, the Idlewild series, and the Family Saga series as just a sampling of her works. She's written almost a dozen books, and each one will make you dive into a little bit more history that you will immerse yourself in. So we're going to talk about some of this fun reading today. It's my pleasure to welcome author Julianne Sisung to the show today. Welcome, Julianne. Thank you for taking time to be on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is fun. Yeah. I love talking about the history okay. uh, that surrounds my books. Well, Julianne, could you start by telling the audience a little bit about yourself? How did you become a writer or decide to become a writer in this historical fiction genre? My mom says that I was born with a pen in my hand. Hmm. So it seems like I've always been a writer. Why that particular genre? It's what I read when I was growing up. Oh. It's what it's what I loved. I loved Zane Gray and, of course, Laura Ingalls Wilder and McMurtry, uh -huh. Steinbeck's Dust Bowl. So I've always read historical fiction. Wow. Did you uh, grow up in Michigan? Partly. Okay. I was born in Big Rapids. Okay. Almost southwest michigan mm, yeah. <laughs> and uh, my family moved to hersey when i was very young but being uh, from the gypsies as i am we lived all over the united states and canada I see. and i went to 13 different schools prior to the seventh grade wow it was a lot yeah well so you're very familiar with that region all the way up in the canada then probably hersey is one of the uh settings of, of one of your series I, I was looking at on your website right so right it is yeah the lumber boom mm -hmm. era yeah that's a fascinating era so you have a series of books also set in idlewild michigan right uh, what time period is that set in and what's happening in michigan during that time period I started the Idlewild series, actually after the Hersey series finished, I was looking around mm -hmm. for a place that I kind of knew about, which I did, coming from mm -hmm. the Reed City area. It's a stone's throw from Reed City. Idlewild had a fascinating history, and it started in 1912, and that was what I was interested in, 
how did let me first say this Idlewild is a black resort that died in 1964 but it it was a huge resort for African African American singers and musicians and philosophers Mm -hmm. Um, 1912 wasn't a very happy time for African Americans Mm -hmm. The KKK was rampant. Um, I didn't know that. I thought we all had white halos in Michigan. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know anything about the Black Legion. Come to find out, we Mm. had them in Michigan and in Indiana and Illinois. I didn't even know what the Black Legion was until I started researching. Their whole purpose for existing was to protect clan leaders wow i know it's crazy the where idlewild is it's off of us 10 about the center between claire and luddington Uh next six miles from baldwin and how did idlewild grow as a black resort in the middle of cross burnings in Mancelona and Traverse City and KKK marches in Grand Rapids, two to 3,000 strong, near to Nuego, who had a 20% Klan registration in in males. Yeah. So that was my interest. Not so much when they got popular and everybody went there. But how did uh-huh. it get started? Interesting. And I guess that takes it through the Prohibition era as well. It does. It does. Because there was a lot of speakeasies up in that area of Michigan, too, all the way up the coast. Mm-hmm. And Right. Interesting. The, another interesting thing that I found when I was researching Idlewild and the Klan, and w- what did the Klan stand for? They had very puritanical uh-huh. belief systems. If you can believe that <laughs> they didn't wow. they hated prostitution alcohol gambling and in idlewild all three of those things were pretty evident wow but i came across no accounts where idlewild was actually disturbed by clan behavior interesting Not, yeah well that's, yeah. that's interesting because they're right in Grand Rapids, there was a history of the prostitution. I had another mm-hmm. author who's written a lot about that history on in the Grand Rapids area and all the way over to Ottawa County. You know, as far south as Kalamazoo, there were houses yeah. of prostitution. She's written and explored that subject matter. But um, I think it was prior to 1915, though. It was like the eight, late 1800s, turn of the century period okay. that she was focusing on. So 1915, that's an interesting era to be evolving. That's almost kind of out in the wilderness, isn't it, in Idlewild? It is. I mean, yeah. It is. It's uh, in, it, right in Lake County. Uh-huh. Um, Scylla Evans is a, a, a young African-American woman who does tours of Idlewild because she was born and raised there. Uh-huh. Her grandmother ran the whistle stop because uh-huh. there was no train stop, that there wasn't a depot in uh-huh. Idlewild. And uh, she talked when she was giving me the tour 
the historical wow. tour. She talked about the prostitution that was, um, it wasn't looked down on. It was just a given. That's that's what they did. Wow. But but it did grow. It's not, at one point in time, 30,000 people used to go there in the summertime. And people like like uh, B.B. King and Della Reese went there, and um, W.E.B. E. Dubois was there. Wow. Um, Those are all big names. But, I mean, that's yeah. in the blues and the yeah. you know, writing and all. Wow. My mother went there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's, an, that's a fascinating thing. So the, the you've written three books on that, uh, uh, looking at your okay. website here in the series. Now, it... It starts out in its evolution and takes it to the whole saga, and it kind of disappeared after the civil rights movement. Is that correct? It was. You could have shot a gun and watched it die. Really? So quickly, and I understand why. It, it wasn't needed anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, so it was... They it was said, like an escape at the time. Yes, it was a place. It was a peaceful place wow. where black families could go and swim peacefully, oh, and yeah. hunt and fish and uh, and gather and relax, and that was an unheard of thing at that time. So Interesting. when when um, one of the owners, there were four white couples that started this. Two of okay. them from White Cloud. Okay. They bought 2,700 acres and homesteaded it for three years before starting to sell lots for a dollar down and a dollar a month. Okay. Um, to their their aim was to address middle class Black Americans from and bring them from the cities. I see. And it worked after wow. World War One. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. That is, uh, it's like a hidden history that people don't know about, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, I've had some other guests on that, um, uh, on the Underground Railroad Society based in Cass County. And there was a, uh, early, uh, this was in you know, pre Civil War era, the settlement of a black community out there that were former slaves that said that started the first black community really here in Michigan. And, um, that had its own unique culture too. They were very, so they were surrounded by Quakers who just, you know, treated them yeah. as equals and everything. And it's just interesting that, you know, almost 100 years later or 75 years later, it's a different story in uh, like a mid to northern Michigan area. That's fascinating. So some of your other books go into the lumber industry. We talked about mm -hmm. uh, Hersey series. Right. right. The, the Hersey, I'm... I, backed that up a little bit in time because it's that whole series is loosely based on my ancestors my grandmother okay. I okay. wanted it at the peak of the lumber boom so I just picked her up and moved her back a little bit <laughs> I see I see yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was fun and Hersey was a lumber town it started mm -hmm. out as about 300 people and yep. when the lumber people came it just boomed yeah. And seven saloons lined the main street with a church at either end. Wow. Yeah. And <laughs> then it burned. Oh, as, really? As many of the lumber towns did yeah. burn. They rebuilt it and it burned again. And they rebuilt it. Wow. 
The third time they said, okay, we're done. Wow. And the lumber moved north. Yeah, that's an interesting era in Michigan. It's the range of dates is like 1840 to about 1900, a little bit beyond 1900. And, uh, you know, when the lumber starts running out, you know, the white pines start disappearing, you know. And uh, it's a. I've, I've learned a lot about what the loss of our trees. Yeah, I bet you did when you were researching the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Right, the grayling fish, which was a real staple in Michigan, beautiful fish uh-huh. that we don't hear of anymore because we pretty much killed it. It's a cold water fish okay. from the cold water streams. And when you take all those trees away from the streams and the water warms up, the fish who need that cold water can't survive. Wow. There's always an ecological reaction yeah. to every change that man makes in the into the uh, ecology. Wow. Yeah, and I, I know that they, uh, I was researching it because I just did a podcast episode that's coming out next week on the lumber industry. And it's, the pines were used initially because they floated. You know, and they could easily transport those down the rivers because when the lumber industry started, it was the 1840s. There was no railroads up that way. So, and they had to transport the logs down trails through the woods on ice. So they did most of the cutting in the wintertime. And then they'd, the spring thaw would come, they'd push it into the rivers mm-hmm. and move the rivers down to the different um, ports and take it to the lumber mills, you know, and, um, and they, they ignored the hardwoods initially because they didn't float. They, they, they would sink to the bottom of the lakes and the rivers. So it wasn't until the mining industry up North started to need them for the, uh, the smelters that they were setting up for the mining industry, that hardwoods really became a major, a second wave almost of the lumber industry, you know, so it's, it's a fascinating it's, uh, history. It, it is a uh, a common statement that people make about Michigan and its its mm-hmm. lumber that we built Chicago. <laughs> oh yeah, I think we built the Midwest all the way to Iowa right. and and Nebraska. All the, if you if anybody today has a home that was built prior to 1900 in Nebraska, it was probably wood from Michigan. You know. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, any, it's just built uh, built the United States really in those eras, so so that then um, so your saga on hearsay goes through different generations. Is that how it works in your stories, or it in this in the saga story? Yes, uh-huh. it spans okay. about thirty five years, and okay. as happens in a lot of my books, um, there is a strong woman. <laughs> in them okay. who objects to puritanical standards being mm-hmm. enforced okay or forced on her so that is what happens in the beginning of that based on my grandmother's life and okay. it follows uh several generations one of the most interesting things i think about the four books is that We get to watch the shift in generations Mm -hmm. and the shift in the mothering and fathering going on because 
Okay. The mother becomes the child, and the child becomes the parent and yeah. the caregiver. When yeah. you begin to notice the shoulders getting smaller mm -hmm. and the height shrinking, yeah. changes happen. Yeah. I think that's a family dynamic that a lot of people can identify with, you know, for the whole years. Hopefully we can, yes. Hopefully, yes, hopefully everybody yes. gets to do that. <laughs> <laughs> what What would you say was your most challenging subject to research and write into your stories? You know, I get asked that question. Well, actually, they don't ask it in that way. They say... Mm -hmm. What did you like to write the most? Right, right. You know, what is the best book? Those are different questions. <laughs> mm -hmm. And for me, the state of the Native Americans in Michigan and in the nation mm -hmm. became so difficult for me to continue to research for a couple of reasons. One, I don't know how I remained so ignorant and I'm an educator. Wow. Yeah. I was educated in Mount Pleasant at Central Michigan University for my undergrad work in the Department of Education. Wow. I didn't know anything about Indian boarding schools. Mm -hmm. How could I not know? Yep. And after that, it was to continue to read personal accounts from so many who either were boarding at the Indian boarding schools or mm -hmm. had parents or grandparents who were. Right. And the hor horrific, horrific things that happened to them there. Yep. It's a very dark history in America, for sure. Um it's uh, I've had a lot of time to, I've worked closely through, I, I work with the Battle Creek Regional History Museum, and we work closely with the uh, Nottawasepi Huron Band of the Potawatomi, and they've imparted some of that history to us, and we've been working with them to try to preserve their history in the museum and you know, consult with them all the time, and it's, uh, but that's definitely a part of the, uh, the history and the timeline of America that... Uh, you know, people need to learn about because that's it's, it's a sad time that happened. You know, sad state of events for the Trail of Tears and the and the boarding schools and all of that. You know, I try to remain objective, mm -hmm. which you really can't do when you're writing fiction. Yeah, <laughs> you want to project feeling mm -hmm. in your readers in one way or another. But I still want to be honest in my writing. Yeah. And it was very difficult to be honest and still keep it within the boundaries of where I try to keep my work, which is clean and yeah. free of terrible language. Right. Um, but the things that I found happening in some of these personal accounts, it had to be in the book. Mm -hmm. In that final book. Okay, and which book was that? Which of uh, what series? The the North series. Okay, so it's a newer one that you've been working on. 
recently. Yeah, right. Uh, it just years. came out um, in January or February. Okay. Somewhere around there. Promises, Vows, and Treaties. Yeah. And I, I called it that because I wanted it to try to incorporate the all three books because mm -hmm. all three books dealt with broken promises. Yeah. Broken treaties. Some mm -hmm. of the promises were between individuals, some between nation and people. Yeah. So in as a writer, you've written um, three different eras, basically, of Michigan's history. What mm -hmm. would you say was your favorite um, era to write about in Michigan from a historical perspective? <laughs> I have to, <laughs> I have to not go by decades because it's yeah. it's more like thirty years. Yeah, I like the yeah. period in time that um, new innovations collide with old traditions. Mm -hmm. For example, I think that having automobiles on the same dirt road as horses and buggies mm -hmm. is fascinating. It is. It is. <laughs> you have people with one foot in both camps. Yeah. And yeah. or one trying to ignore that camp and pretend it doesn't exist and they both did it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Electricity is coming in and, and mm -hmm. is in all of the cities, not in the small towns and in the rural areas. It trickles in to those right. places. So we, we have electrified cities and we have outhouses. Mm -hmm. and we have running water and plumbing and outhouses. So there's yeah. a there's about a thirty year span there that I like. Um, I like to see what happens when these two things collide. Yeah, the inter and the viewpoint on new technology. You know, some people thought of like I did an episode about the telephones coming into Battle Creek, and I believe it was like 1890 or something like that. You know, and this was just the the telephone exchange was just within the city, and they had to. Uh, they only had like 20 or 30 people originally sign up for it and everybody thought it was a fad and you know <laughs> and now we're carrying phones in our pocket you know um, you know it's just a, a whole different um, look back when you look back at history and you see the different uh, eras and changes you know that mm -hmm. they had to confront the new technology and uh, and it's just you know the response to it is very similar to even new technology today you know, uh, ask my 97 year old mother. Yeah. Yeah. When the GPS starts talking to me in my car, uh -huh. mom goes, where are they? Where are they? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We had a fire department historian that spoke uh -huh. at the museum and he said that um, he was telling the story about when they were switching from horse-drawn fire engines, fire, you know, carts, to the gas-powered ones. And that there was a resistance within the fire department to switch because the horses were dependable and, you know, the... And the fire chief had to basically break down almost like a spreadsheet today of showing the cost savings with the gas gasoline fire engines to get them to agree to support it you know that they you know the horses cost more because you had to feed them and you had to care for them and there's vet bills and there's 
you know, the storage and so forth <laughs> to break it all down. And there was only like a 10% savings, but that was what um, persuaded them to go with the newer technology, even though the newer technology could go farther and faster than a horse to a fire and save property faster. It was just, you know, changing that mindset of ideas right. you know, on new technology. So I think that's one of the interesting and fascinating things that you uncover in looking back into the past a little bit, you know. I know that when I first started the Hersey series, I had mm -hmm. to call my brother. You know, research is one thing that is mm -hmm. right out there, but there isn't a lot of research that says a horse can go seven miles an hour. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Dial and my phone to talk and say, Mark, how, how far can I go on a horse in this amount of time? <laughs> right, yeah. Interesting. That's uh, the little details that you have to find out if you're going to tell the story properly. Right. You know? right. So, so how can people find out about your books and how can they, do you have a website that you can share with us? I do. I do. It's um, HTTP, TTP, um, juliesisung.com. Okay. So it's J-U-L-I-S-I-S-U-N-G dot com correct and she has all of her books on there and i recommend that you buy the books from there because she'll get it to you directly and you'll sign it for folks is that if they order it through the website oh absolutely so, give me your name and i can personalize it to you yeah mm -hmm. and she's also are you traveling at any events this summer that you'll have your books available if they're going out to different fairs and festivals many okay. i am putting a list out soon I always uh, advertise it on my historical fiction Facebook page. Okay. Uh, so you can find so, me there as well. Okay. Is that the same Julie Sasung on, yes. on Facebook? Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Yep. And I'll put the links to that in the description of the podcast episode for you folks out there. So you can check out her books. I'll put her website and I'll look up and I'll put her Facebook link on there so that you can find out where she's at this summer. Fascinating to talk to. I've really enjoyed uh, hearing your perspective on history today, Julianne. It's just, uh, you know, I feel like I could talk to you for another hour or so, but uh, it, it, it's fun. And, and I love this, the, the settings of your stories, and I love how you actually will shift to a new era and begin a whole new series, and, and it becomes it faces its own challenges with each one. Uh, and each dynamic, you know. It's difficult to end a series um, mm -hmm. for the readers. I, yeah. I finished the first series quite a long while ago, and I still have people emailing me and saying, where is Harley the hobo? <laughs> Please don't end Harley the hobo. <laughs> so they may you may have to come out with a special book on harley you know <laughs> could be also if anybody yeah. has some great information on the keweenaw peninsula mm -hmm. email me i can put you in touch with somebody that has a lot of data on that i would I had, love that i had him on as a guest from the eaton county historical commission and he is just a wealth of information about the whole keweenaw peninsula and the copper industry up there. Right. And uh, he's uh, quite a fascinating individual, so I'll, I'll certainly share his email with you. Um, so you have another book that you are working on. Mm -hmm. That's part of the UP. Is that um, 
part of the Northern Michigan series? It is not part of the North Michigan series. It, I, okay. I haven't named this series. I don't even okay. know if it is one yet. But yes, it okay. is at, in the Keweenaw, and it is in Copper Country during the 1913 strike, okay. the mine strike, and the Italian Hall disaster that happened as a result of the mine strike. Up in Calumet? In Calumet, which was at the yeah. time Red Jacket. Yes. Okay. Oh, okay. Yes, a lot of people it... died, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, that's quite a tragedy. That's a, mm -hmm. a definitely a story you're going to want to get the facts wet on that. That's a, a very um, fascinating story with Michigan, and I don't think a lot of people know about that. That's one of the biggest disasters in Michigan history. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a very sad incident. So that's there really is no agreement about culpability. Right. Yeah. And that's what's also shocking mm -hmm. that no one was ever brought to justice for that that whole incident. So we may have to have you back on when that book comes out. Talk right. a little bit about it. You know, so. Uh, well, thank you for joining me today, Julianne. It was a pleasure having you on. Um, I hope to have you back on in the future and we'll talk about more aspects of your books and um, different bits of history that tie into different parts of Michigan. Do you have any last minute uh, things that you want to share with the fans or people that might be interested in getting your books? Or I'm eager to talk with anyone who wants to talk about books. Okay, great. <laughs> and, and I love it. So my email is out there for everybody. Okay, good. And you can find that on her website and I will mm -hmm. put the link to that in the description for everybody. And so if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a like or review or a rating of some sort on whatever app that you are listening on. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening.